Quaker.com podcast. This is podcast number 154. Today is Thursday, May 31st, 2012, and my name is Ben Stone. And if, uh, in case you didn't hear it, because we kind of stuck it on the end of the podcast yesterday, um, tickets have been purchased, space has been reserved, and it would appear at this point as though I am going to Porkfest. Porkfest is the New Hampshire porcupine liberty festival that's held june 18th through 24th this year and it's being held in northern in the northern part of new hampshire at a nice campground and so i'm taking the uh, the bad quaker.com motorhome and heading up there kai is also going to try to make it we have tickets for her and for we all told there should be four of us from bad from badquaker.com that will be there and uh, I'm going to be in site or space number 82 in my motorhome so if you happen to be at uh, at Porkfest this year um, feel free to drop by space 82 knock on the motorhome door and uh, as long as the, <laughs> as long as it's reasonable time of the of the day You'll probably find me somewhere around there and um, say hi. Um, okay, so, and and if you, and let me just encourage you, there's not very many camping spaces left, so you may not be able to actually get into the campgrounds there. There may be some, um, some motel uh, rooms available in the general vicinity, or you may be able to uh, share a campground with somebody, a campsite with someone, but uh, but spaces are filling up real real fast. Um, it if you haven't already got your tickets, but you're planning on going, you better move quick. And if uh, if you if you can't make it this year, um, be sure and get you know plan for next year because this is one of the big Liberty events of the year for the East Coast. It's one of the two big events uh, for the East Coast. You know, in for the West Coast, they have that big thing in Las Vegas every year. But for the eastern half of the U.S., you know, Pork Fest, uh, it's the summer thing to do. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, now, yesterday I talked a little bit about James C. Scott's book, The Art of Not Being Governed. And I just wanted to bring that up again, that uh, what a good book that is. And well, there are limitations in the writing, but the but the information that's in that book is uh, really really good. And there's um, different examples of uh, anarchist societies and anarchist communities uh, living and thriving, and and uh, it it just it's one of the really good things to have to debunk the myth that there has never been an anarchist society or that anarchy has never worked or any of those arguments that you always get thrown at you on a regular basis. 
Um, also, I wanted to mention, I, I talked before about the History Channel's uh, miniseries that was on the Hatfields and McCoys. And it finished up last night. I watched the final episode of that. And, and again, it's not bad. It's a, you know, it's an enjoyable show and everything like that. Um, I, I don't know about the accuracy of the storyline. Some of it is clearly, uh, you know, Hollywoodized. Uh, so, you know, you always get that from anything that comes out of Hollywood or anything that comes out of the mainstream uh, in, in, in any form. You always get a certain amount of that. So, you know, they they took, uh, what do they call it, uh, literary license, which means they make stuff up. But um, above and beyond that, you know, it's a pretty good show. Um they, without really intending it, I, I, I think maybe it's impossible to tell the story of the Hatfields and McCoys and not realize that the root cause of the problem was the state. Whether we're t- talking about the problems that, ha- that happened due directly to the war between the states or if we're talking about the interference in the clan, uh, you know, the clan, the clan process um, was a very successful anarchist uh, uh, society for well over a hundred years in Appalachia. The Scotch Irish started coming into Appalachia in the mid 1600s, and they migrated in at a fairly steady rate up until about 1720s, when uh, the, when the immigration was cut off, and they came from primarily um, Ulster area of Northern Ireland. And uh, quite a few came right off the Scotch-English border. They and and a lot of this was not by choice. A lot of these people were um, pressed or rounded up and uh, brought over against their will. And uh, many of them uh, immigrated willingly. But uh, either way, they they got here. They got to uh, the American shores, and they didn't function well at all in the colonies. They were basically de- dealing with the same English culture that they had had to, that they were outcasts of uh, in Scotland, England, and in Ireland. So, you know, they, they did what they could do. They were, they tended towards, uh, because of their roots in, in Scotland, they tended towards mountainous areas anyway. And so they, they couldn't uh, function with the more English type settlers in the colonies and so they went into Appalachia and they and they cut out a living in Appalachia where really you know uh, the Native Americans were not really all that populous in in the, the mountainous parts of Appalachia because the Indians um, due to their hunter-gatherer uh, um, methods they tended to go more towards the um, river valleys. So you, if you look on a map and you see some of the uh, ancient Indian settlements, uh, let's just say if you look at southern Ohio and you take a look at the city of Portsmouth in, in southeastern Ohio, that was at one point that was a huge uh, Indian village or town, really. It was like a, a, a large Indian town or, or even small city. And it stretched out uh, actually larger than present-day Portsmouth. And it actually uh, went across the river to the Kentucky side, and all the all of the tillable flat land right in that area was all one big, uh, huge uh, native complex, and uh, and and that's kind of the method that the Indians used. They used those those flat lands in the um, 
uh, in the river uh, valleys like that, all the way up and down the Scioto River, that's the kind of land that they that they really uh, sought. If you look in Google Earth, um, look in Ohio, look at Ohio and Google Earth. Uh, go to southeastern Ohio, the city of Portsmouth, and the Scioto River comes off the Ohio River and sort of snakes up. And if you look at it in Google Earth. The Scioto River has actually taken two different paths, and you can see one goes, the current uh, path goes to the west side of Portsmouth, and the ancient path goes to the east side of Portsmouth. And there's a huge uh, salt lick on the eastern path of that river that's, you know, the river no longer goes that way now, but there's a nice big river valley there. Uh, at one point, there was a, during the Ice Ages, or actually, I think, before the Ice Ages, I'm not sure exactly, but the the Ohio River actually went the opposite direction and went up the Scioto Valley and, and dumped northward at one point in time. So anyway, these floodplains uh, in and around the Scioto River were the perfect place for the natives to grow their crops, and then they could go off on hunting expeditions into the mountains, but they really didn't live in the mountains. On the other hand, the Appalachian people that that came from uh, from the Scotch English border and from Ireland, uh, from Northern Ireland, um, they were very well suited for moving right into the heart of Appalachia, for building cabins of an extremely simple design, and um, living in areas where uh, nobody else wanted to live. And they did that very successfully from the mid-1600s well up into the 1800s before, uh, you know, the governments began to absorb Appalachia and uh, uh, bring them into a very uncomfortable submission. And that's the the setting where you have the, the real story of the Hatfields and the McCoys, they were right at the end of the clan society when when the clan societies were functional in Appalachia. All those minor problems that you saw in the in the TV series on the Hatfields and McCoys, all those minor problems in the early part of that would have easily been taken care of within the system within the clan system, but because of the the level of brutality that these people had learned during the war between the states and because of the interference of the so-called authority of West Virginia and Kentucky, the, the governmental um, in, uh, interference in the, in the Klan system, it, it presented a false levels of authority to these people and it, and it forced their decisions to be perverted rather than um, following the way the Klans would have done uh, you know, in, in earlier ages. And the TV show, you know, whether they were intentionally doing this to show that the state was a major part of the problem, or if it's just impossible to tell the story without that part leaking out, it was there. They didn't emphasize it. No one said it openly. Um, but if you if you knew what to look for, you could see that the problem was the the brutality of the war between the states and the brutality that was taught to otherwise peaceful people. And then um, then this false level of authority that comes in from being so-called judges and sheriffs and things like this that were not, uh, 50 years earlier, were not a part of Appalachia. There, there were none of those people in Appalachia 50 years earlier. The, all, all these problems would have been settled peaceably between the clans. And uh, through negotiation and through 
um, through the process of uh, of uh, a repayment of debts uh, that that was uh, traditional among the clans. So anyway, um, so back to the to the TV movie. Now uh, again, it, they didn't do a bad job. The things that struck me wrong were were wrong because because uh, I'm kind of an Appalachian geek. So, for instance, the putting the placing of the of the graveyards down in the river valleys uh, that that's no, they wouldn't have done that because first off, river valleys in Appalachia are uh, even bottomland in a, in a in a um, for a creek or a you know in a hollow. The the bottomlands are very valuable. You don't uh, you don't use those for graveyards. You put graveyards on the tops of hills because the river valleys and the creeks and and things have wild flooding in Appalachia. So you don't put anything down there that can't get washed away. And if you build a house down in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, bottom you know on bottom land or down in near creeks or rivers or whatever you put it up on stilts because there's a good likelihood it's going to have water flowing underneath it at some point in time also if if the flood gets very bad it'll knock your house off the stilts well when everything's over you just grab hold of it and haul it back to where it belongs and jack it back up and put it up on the stilts again and you're okay but uh you can't do that with a graveyard with a graveyard uh fresh graves get washed out bodies go floating down the creek and that's not good for anybody. So in Appalachia, they put their graveyards on tops of the of the mountains. Now, in addition to that, in the final scenes of the show, they really had an opportunity to give the TV series a real Appalachian feel. They had a, a river baptizing as one of the key moments in the end of the movie. Now, this is the perfect opportunity to really provide an Appalachian feel to the to the show, and they failed. They utterly failed. Um, one of the things that stands out as an aspect of Appalachian culture is the music. Um, it is extremely unique uh, to to any culture, uh, or, or from any culture. Um, it it has a certain Irish tilt to it. It has a certain Scottish tilt to it. It has a certain country tilt and a certain southern tilt, but really it is extremely um, specific in its, in, its, um, in its musical content. And especially in the tones, in the high-pitched tones and the, the way um, that, that Appalachian music is sung. And you see that most dramatically at events like baptisms. So, um, so they had the perfect opportunity near the end of the show to bring that aspect of Appalachian culture in and really give it the right flavor. And instead they didn't. They, um, they gave the baptism the music that you might consider, uh, or you might, you might hear it at an Episcopalian church in, you know, in San Bernardino, or uh, you, you might hear it at a, at a, a Methodist church in Massachusetts, but you're not going to hear that that kind of music in Appalachia at a river baptism in, you know, in the year, in, in the year frames that we're talking about there, uh, that, that just, that really uh, put a sour note to it. And I think the music was an issue throughout the show. Um, it had wonderful music. It had wonderful background music throughout the thing, but really it was almost more like Lord of the Rings music than, uh, than Appalachia. Um, so, you know, 
they could, it's not that hard to to find a consultant that knows about Appalachian music, and they could have helped them out on that. So that's again my criticism of the Hatfields and McCoys. I enjoyed the show; it was a good show. Um, they did not uh, they did not fall back on some of the worst stereotypes that people tend to do when dealing with Appalachian people. So I appreciate that. Uh, it's just these few little things, you know, the accents, the placement of the graveyards and the music. It, it could have given it a much more authentic feel if they had done that. But Okay, so let's see now. And now the series is over, so I probably won't have to talk about that anymore. I did want to bring up something that's maybe... Uh, I, I don't know that it's controversial, but it's one of those topics... Where if you bring it up, uh, you're you're opening the proverbial can of worms. So as my friend Michael Dean likes to say, worms all the time. I think I'll open a can of worms. Uh, I mentioned the other day that the uh, I like to call him Bilderberger because I like to make fun of people and <laughs> and and primarily people in my family and people that know me know that I I make fun of names like that. And I do it so much that I end up accidentally putting it in my regular speech. So I, as I went back and listened to my podcast from the other day, instead of saying uh, Bilderberg, uh, Bilderberg Group, when I was talking about the Bilderberg Group, I was calling them Bilderberger because I, I've constantly joked about that they don't sound all that threatening like a New World Order. They sound more like a, uh, a do-it-yourself hamburger stand. But... Anyway, uh, the Bilderberger Group, and I'll try to say it correctly so that uh, throughout this here, so so I'm not making fun of them. I wouldn't want to make fun of them. Anyway, um, when you think about these people, you really don't need uh, foil hat conspiracy stuff because they provide for you plenty of fodder uh, without having to make anything up. Um, if, if you're not familiar with the Bilderberger, Bilderberg group, <laughs> they're a, a, an organization that has met regularly since the early 1950s, and they are extremely secretive. They are some of the richest people in the Western world and, uh, and a collection of uh, hand-picked politicians. And they meet regularly, usually every year, and they discuss secret things that no one that they won't talk about with anyone, and they don't have any kind of recording of what they're talking about. There's no notes. There's no uh, nothing like that. And they refuse to tell, uh, you know, who who is even there. We do know some of the people that are there because observers of the group um, watch, and they take notes every year, and they see who shows up and who leaves and things like this. So uh, this year, they're meeting in Virginia, and uh, I can't remember the name of the big fancy hotel, but they're meeting in Chantilly, Virginia, and, the, and there's some of the Occupy people are going out there. They, they estimate that there's probably going to be over a 1,000 of the Occupy people there to, uh, to protest the uh, Bilderberger, Bilderberg group. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I can't say it. Anyway, um, 
Now, so so should we fear these people? Are they a conspiracy? Are they, you know, well, sure, they're a conspiracy. I mean, anytime you get people together, um, people, anytime people of power come together uh, and plan things, it's a conspiracy. And even when people with little power get together to plan trying to get more power, that's a conspiracy too. So in in essence, it's a conspiracy. But And to think about them or to talk about them, has a tendency to be translated as, oh, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, no, yeah, I I suppose so, you know. I mean, if you see three people on the other side of a city park and they're talking and you lean over to the guy next to you and you go, wonder what they're talking about over there, then uh, at the moment that you speculate as to what they are talking about, you're a conspiracy theorist. So so what I want to say, I want to avoid any of the really wild foil hat stuff and I want to look at this as logically as possible to see what these people are and what they really, you know, if they really provide a threat or, you know. So just think about this for a second. If you just set aside all the fear and all the conspiracy theories and all of the, you know, the lizard people and the everything like that, just set that aside for a second and just think about this. If... You are the kind of a person who believes that mankind needs uh, needs leadership to steer them. You believe that mankind uh, does not act in their own best benefit, in their own best interest. That mankind needs, you know, if you believe the the general statist way of thinking that given the opportunity, humankind would just fall on itself and fight to the last bitter end for the last man standing. If, if you believe these kinds of things that, that, are, that are really the heart of the, of the statist mentality, then you should believe, oh, and also, if you hate war. If you believe that men tend toward war and you think war is a bad thing, and if you think human beings need to have a heavy hand over them to keep them from attacking and fighting each other, if you believe these things, then uh, then naturally you tend to believe the myth of the state. You tend to believe that uh, it's good for some people to have the authority to use aggression to keep people in control. Control. Um, and that being the key, control. And Baggy's walking on my electronics trying to shut my mic off. Let's see if she accomplishes that or if she's just going to come over here and stick her nose on the microphone. Hey, side note real quick. Um, there's some discussion as to whether or not I'm going to bring Baggy with me to uh, to Porkfest. She doesn't travel well in the motorhome. It, it kind of bothers her. But once we get stopped, she really kind of likes the motorhome because it's kind of like a big cat cage for her to climb around and she can go almost anywhere in it. And she climbs around in the cupboards and stuff. She really thinks it's pretty cool. So I might or I might not take Baggy to Porkfest with me. I'm not really sure. So if if she has a fan base out there, <laughs> you can let me know on on uh, on your opinions on that. Anyway, getting back to the Builder Burgers. Um, so the Bilderberg group um, is clearly statists. They, they are clearly statists. And they, uh, they clearly believe that some people should be in control and some people should rule. Um, and they clearly believe that they are 
those people in society who are gifted to the point of where they have been, they and their families have been so successful financially that they know a lot more about this stuff than the rest of us. We're, you know, us down here, us little people, we're just goons and we're just idiots and we're just, you know, sludging along through life, uh, barely picking our knuckles up out of the dirt as we walk. And, and, you know, if you believe these things, if you already accept in your mind that there are, that the more successful people in society uh, should be granted advantages because, uh, you know, even if you look at it, I, I'm trying to make an argument in their case. If you look at it from an evolutionary point of view and you say, well, you know, uh, the more successful should be rewarded and the less successful should be held down. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't have uh, reproductive um, advantages and you know if there's too many of them they can they can be harmful to the species these things start to be the natural way of thinking if if you just follow through the the myth of the state to its logical end then you have to come to the conclusion that certain people should rule over the rest of humanity and certain people should uh, should be allowed to use aggression in order to maintain that position of rule. So, so you don't have to be a crazy conspiracy theorist to realize uh, if you accept the concepts of the state as being legitimate and you just follow through those concepts to their logical end, then indeed some people in society should rule over all the others. And if you have two or three or ten or a hundred of these individual groups ruling over people, then the individual groups are going to clash. So the fewer of those individual groups, uh, the better. That way, there's less opportunity to clash. In other words, if you have a, if you have a, a France and a Germany, then you have the opportunity for France and Germany to fight. But if France and Germany um, have the same uh, have the same head. Uh, you know, the, the same uh, leadership structure, then France and Germany will never fight because, in essence, it's the same. It, it would be fighting itself. And so if you take this out to its logical end, there should be only one state, and it should be global. Now, that's not a, that's not a conspiracy theory. It's just following out statism to its logical end. And the way the statist then begins to believe is that the way you end war is to end individual countries and have one state. Now, this is ignoring a lot of the anarchist argument, the, anar ar the anarchist argument being the reason that governments fight is because they're based on the state. When you have uh, societies without a state-based government, they don't fight. And they settle their things on small family levels, uh, like what I was talking about with the clans, and it never gets to the point of war. But when you have a state, the state is founded on immorality. And so it doesn't matter if you have a thousand states or if you have one state, it doesn't matter. It's still founded on immorality and it's still uh, imposing aggression on people, and that's immoral no matter whether there's peace or war. So, so it is a different philosophical angle that you're looking at this, but for the builder, uh, for the Bilderberg 
people, they see themselves as being highly successful, and there's quite likely a level of compassion and possibly guilt at them being so uh, successful and then looking down on the rest of the world as it struggles. And so they feel an obligation to fix this by all getting together and working towards one single state, which would end all war, and a great vast network of distribution of goods so that no one starves. Well, as your mind goes in those directions, you're, again, you're talking about socialism. And it doesn't matter how compassionate you are, and it doesn't matter what your uh, your intent is. Once you accept aggression as being legitimate, and you accept central planning as a method to try to uh, improve the lives of people, you've accepted the two fallacies that both statism and socialism are based on. And you lose the ability to allow the market to control itself. And you begin to central plan the market, and then all the problems and distortions that come with central planning come into play, and um, you have people starving to death. So if these people were both compassionate and intelligent, if they were if they were as compassionate as they fancy themselves, and if they were as intelligent as they fancy themselves, they would see the immorality uh, of what they're trying to do. But they don't because because they're they're taken with this belief in the state. And now Baggy's decided she's going to try to knock down the the blinds on the window. I'm going to have to pause and open the blinds for her, otherwise she's going to attack them. Okay, actually, since I paused to help Baggy out there and uh, have her not tear the window down, tear the blinds down, rather, this is a good time to pause and uh, have our commercial break. I'll be back in about two minutes, and we'll I'll wrap this up on the Bilderberg group, and I'll get to uh, a different topic altogether. So be back in two minutes or so. How would you like to support BadQuaker.com and get something nice for yourself at the same time? I want to tell you about Survival Gear Bags. It's run by my friend Kelly, who believes in and adheres to the non-aggression principle. Kelly's customers know him for his great customer service and his personal touch because Kelly handles all customer service himself. The main focus of Survival Gear Bags is to allow you to build your own custom emergency kits with quality gear. Now, I know this because I bought my bug out bag from Survival Gear Bags over two years ago, and I've gone all over the country with it by my side. And you can rest assured that the prices will always be the best they can be at Survival Gear Bags. And if you use the link from badquaker.com, they'll probably throw in something for free for you with your order. Now, how do you do this? Well, it's simple. You go to badquaker.com. On the right side of the page, click on the picture of the backpack. Then look around at Survival Gear Bags and find the stuff you want. You'll help badquaker.com, and you'll support a merchant that's one of us. Now, I want to tell you about another way you can support badquaker.com and get something really cool at the same time. Shire Silver. Shire Silver is the proud seller of silver and gold trade cards. Shire Silver believes that silver and gold trade cards will show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. So what are silver and gold trade cards? There are specific weights of gold and silver laminated inside credit card-sized tradable cards. They're a handy and affordable way to trade precious metals. 
These cards received nationwide recognition when they were widely used as barter at the New Hampshire Porcupine Festival. You want a beer and a hot dog? Hand them a Shire Silver 5 card and get a Shire Silver 1 spot back as change. So again, what do you do? Well, you go to badquaker.com. On the right side, just below the backpack, you'll see the Shire Silver trade cards. Click on those cards and then check out Shire Silver's site. Be sure and watch Ron's video that's right there on the main page. And then swap some of those ridiculous Federal Reserve notes for something of real value. Something you can keep, trade, or give as the coolest gift ever. But be sure and use the link from badquaker.com. Thanks, folks. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. I was talking about the Bilderberg Group and their meeting this year in Chantilly, Virginia. The last thing I wanted to point out about them is that there is a, a real alluring aspect of the state. It's, a, it's an aspect of the state that even no matter what your beliefs are, uh, unless you really are founded solidly in the concepts that, that the state is based on evil, it's based on aggression, you can't do wrong and make something good happen. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. And unless you're really founded in these things, it's really easy to be tempted when you have the opportunity to use the power and the aggression of the state for what you perceive as good. Even if the person, um, you know, I'm thinking of all, I'll go back and beat up the Ron Paul people again. I'm thinking of all the Ron Paul supporters who honestly believe that the state is bad and they and they and many of them many anarchist Ron Paul supporters understand that the aggression of the state is immoral and yet the allure the 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 temptation that maybe we could use the state to just move the government back towards liberty to a certain amount just to just to lighten it up a little bit or maybe make it a little bit better during our lifetime and but but these things, uh, this this candy, this this mind candy, that that attracts you into using evil to accomplish good, it it goes against what you yourself know, um, and this is the, even the case with these Bilderberg uh, people, and and by the way, that's uh, if you don't know, they're named after the original hotel that they met in. Uh, I believe it was in the Netherlands where when the original group first met that's how they got the name Bilderberg. So anyway, but uh, this year among the people meeting and reportedly this is this person is on the steering committee whatever the steering committee is is um I'm probably going to mispronounce his name Peter Thiel or P Peter Thiel. He's the co-founder of PayPal and he was a big investor in Facebook and people regularly point him out as a libertarian and say Oh, he's he's very libertarian. He's helped libertarian causes, and he talks about libertarian things and so forth. And yet here he is at Bilderberger uh, meeting with some of the most statist individuals on the planet. And how can that be? How can he be a libertarian and still be meeting with the Bilderberg group? Well, it's it's exactly like the thing with Ron Paul. It's the idea that, you know, maybe maybe I can use my power and my influence and this and this uh, this mechanism of aggression, maybe I can use it for good, and I'll but I'll put it down when I'm done. I promise, I'll put it down. You know, I just want to use the ring, to, uh, just just long enough to just do this one thing, 
and, and, and then I'll put it down. I'll take it off. I'll never put it back on again. That's, that's the mentality that comes with this. And it's far, uh, it's far too tempting for any human. And, you know, we, we, so often people talk about Ron Paul, like almost like he's, well, like he's saint-like or like he's superhuman in a way, like somehow these powers will not affect him. Somehow he's not going to be drawn to the dark side or whatever. And yet, um, whether we're talking about this guy, uh, the co-founder of PayPal, whether we're talking about Ron Paul, or whether we're talking about anybody else that is tempted to use the aggression of the state to try to do good with it, um, you're, you're becoming the very evil thing that you know deep down in your heart is wrong. One other thought I wanted to leave you with before I stop talking about these, this builder, uh, Bilderberg group. I said it right that time. Took me two attempts, but I said it right. Anyway, um, a lot of people put uh, a lot of people in the conspiracy tending direction put a lot of power and authority into the into these people's hands. They really accredit them with almost everything bad that happens. But you have to keep in mind something, and and I'm not saying that the Bilderberg group is good or that they're trying to do good or that, you know, I'm, I, I think they are either evil or they are seriously deceived or what's most likely is the combination of people there. Uh, the people there are a combination of both heavily deceived and sincerely evil. Um, I don't have much hope for somebody like David Rockefeller that there's any, you know, any good in him at all. But uh, but I hate to make that decision. He could be just you know seriously seriously demented and and not realizing that everything he's doing and touching turns to evil no matter what his intent is. But uh, anyway, um, the thought that I want to leave you with on this is that their their influence is is not magical and it's not all-encompassing and they do not have the kind of power that is commonly attributed to them the whole societal breakdown that we're seeing across the united states and across the west and western uh, culture is not from the bilderberg group you know you can't accredit this this little pocket of statists you can't accredit them with things like cracking down on uh, lemonade stands and bake sales and tomato gardens and you know it, it, they they are not the cause of these things but what causes a city council in you know in some small town in Iowa the thing that in that that motivates and causes a city council in some small town like that to crack down on some kid's lemonade stand or some church in Pennsylvania that gets attacked by a local uh, county commissioner because they don't have the right permits to have a, a, a potluck at their, at their church or, you know, uh, some, some overly zealous uh, federal agent somewhere that decides that you can't have this, this evil, you know, unpasteurized cheese. And, and when, when you start to see all these things on so many levels of government, starting from the smallest town councils all the way up 
to the idiots that control New York City that decided here lately that they're going to make laws as to how big a, a, a glass of soda can be served in a, in a restaurant. All these people on all these levels are not acting ridiculously like this, uh, aggressing upon the public because the Bilderberger Group meets once a year and talks about what you know international policies they can try to get passed. The problem in the in deep down in the root of the tiny little city council all the way to the big city uh, controls in a place like New York City and the federal controls that are you know uh, attacking milk uh, raw milk farmers and uh, and all the way up to the to these people at Bilderberg Group the the flaw is not a small group of evil people. The flaw is the belief that you can use aggression upon other people to accomplish what you believe to be good. So, yeah, Bilderberg Group might have the power to choose the next president. They might have the power to choose which country is going to be attacked by the United States next or whether or not NATO is going to start bombing another Middle Eastern country. They may have that kind of power. But they have that kind of that that kind of evil flows because of that belief, because of that core uh, myth that the state is a good thing and that the state can accomplish good, and that using aggression and forcing people can ultimately produce a good. That's the flaw of the Bilderberg Group. Not that they're ultimate rich trying to control the world and trying to bring a one-world society or a one-world government. That's not the problem. The problem is deep down in the philosophical belief that, that what they're doing is good. That it's good to use aggression to accomplish your means. Oops, I said that backwards. Use aggression as the means to accomplish your ends. That's the core that's wrong with the Bilderberg Group, and it's wrong with the city council in some small Iowa town, and it's wrong with the county commissioner in Pennsylvania, and it's wrong in, this, in New York City in the, in the halls of the mayor's office, and that's what's wrong in Congress. And I don't know if you saw it or not. There's a, uh, there's a YouTube video that's floating around that's, that's getting, uh, becoming viral of some, I believe it's an Illinois... Uh, an Illinois uh, a politician of some kind on the Illinois House floor, I believe. I could be wrong on that. And the guy is just losing it. I mean, he's scream, literally screaming mad, throwing papers in the air, smacking at the microphone. And he's just beside himself with anger. And the point of his anger is that the democratic process is not working in their political body that they have there. And one party is just running roughshod over the other. And um, and the leadership of that of that body, and again, I believe it's like the the uh, state house or whatever. But his claim is that the leadership of that body is uh, is distorting the political process and and distorting uh, you know the democratic processes, and uh, and he's failing to do what he thought he could go into government and do. Because of these processes that are put in place, or that are that are in place, that are preventing him from properly serving the public. Well, again, he's missing the real point. It's not that the processes are wrong. It's that your belief that you can go into government and use the aggression of government upon people and accomplish good. 
See, the only way you can do that, logically, if you think this through as a statist, the only way you can do that is if you're the one with the power. But since there's millions of us, we all think that the end goal of whatever, we all have a different idea of what the end goal of good would be. Because deep down inside every single human being, their first desire, this is coming from from the most primitive animal um, aspects of our nature, the most primitive desire and the most base desire within each and every human being is individual survival, to fill our own desires and needs first. Even, even when we do things, even when we do acts of compassion and love towards people, it's, still, it's because deep down inside we want to feel the satisfaction that comes with doing a good deed for another human being. So, so yes, we do something kind for someone, but, when we, but that satisfaction that you feel when you do something kind is a reward system that causes you to want to do something kind again to someone else. Ultimately, doing a kind deed becomes an act of selfishness. I'm doing the kind deed because it feels really good to help somebody. So when you echo that outward and you th- realize that there are millions and millions and millions of people, billions of people, with each individual one of them ultimately having their own individual desires as the number one priority, then it, then it becomes illogical to think that any one of those people can then make decisions for others that would turn out to be best for them. Because no matter what, deep down inside, your number one concern is yourself. No matter how compassionate towards other people are, you're seeing it through a set of glasses that are tilted towards your own desires. So, so the mayor of New York decides, well, it's bad for people to have too much sugar in their diet. It's bad for them to drink these syrupy drinks with, that are packed full of corn syrup. So what can we do to help them? And it's his desire to have less sugar in his diet, and it's his idea that these syrupy drinks are bad. But instead of him using that on himself and saying, well, then I'll just drink less, his desire to help other people causes him to bring aggression on other people and say, well, we'll just make it so that nobody can have that. We'll put restrictions and limitations on other people based on what I believe is best for me. And... When the mayor of New York does that, or when a city council in Iowa does that, or when the Bilderberg Group does that, or when the president of the United States does it, or when Ron Paul does it, it doesn't matter who does it. When you take it upon yourself to place your laws upon other human beings, you're ripping that fruit off the tree, and you're making the decision, what is good and evil? And you're placing yourself in the position of God, and you're saying... I'll be on the throne. I'll be the lawmaker. I'll be the decision maker. I lift myself up and I become a god. And that's what you're doing. When when you do that, when you take the force of government, the aggression of government, and you inflict your will on others, that's exactly what you're doing. You're making a god of yourself. And it doesn't matter uh, if you're in a major group of of unbelievably wealthy people like the Bilderberg group or if you're just a politician trying like that guy in that in the in the Illinois house that's just trying his best to do what he thinks is good for his constituency 
or if you're in a town council, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what level you are, or if you're Ron Paul running for, for the presidency. It doesn't matter. If it's your desire to get a hold of that ring of power and use it, even if you want to use it for good, you're still desiring to use the aggression of government to force your will on other people. So that even somebody, even this Peter Thiel or Thiel, whatever his name is, the co-founder of, the co-founder of PayPal, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say he was a very libertarian, as they like to say, or a good libertarian or whatever. Let's say he was a philosophically consistent libertarian. Is that a better way to put that? Let's say, let's say he was a philosophically consistent libertarian at one point in time. But when he gets the opportunity to you know, do good, and he says, they've invited me to this. Maybe I can go in there and maybe I can do good. Well, and he, maybe, he even, maybe he even uses the kind of logic where he says, well, really, this is a voluntary group of entrepreneurs and, and this is not actually a government. So Bilderberg Group is not like the government. They, they're not, they don't have an army that works for them. They don't have that kind of power. But ultimately, who, who puts legs on the things that the Bilderberg Group uh, decides on? Well, when they go out and they then individuals among that group, when they hire lobbyists, when they put influence on government, when they you know support uh, a cause with money that ultimately uh, goes back and influences government, one way or the other, even though the Bilderberg Group is a voluntary association, and therefore you know Peter Thiel or Thiel or whatever his name is. Even though he may be able, as a libertarian, he may be able to justify being a part of it because it's not a political body. Even at that, that because of the power that they weld with the kind of wealth that they have, and that wealth came from the system uh, that we have now with state-dominated industry, with, with corporations that exist strictly because the state makes it possible for them to be a corporation and exist because of all these levels of interference of the state, even a voluntary group like that, uh, when it exercises, um, influence upon governments, they are in fact using the aggression of the state to accomplish their, their goals. But you can see how it would be so tempting, how the allure, how the siren song would be so sweet that you just couldn't resist, and you'd have to. Even, you know, it's been said about the the sirens. That's, that's a good one. Uh, it didn't matter how many skeletons and skulls were piled up on the beach. It didn't matter the amount of human bones that were on the beach. The sailors would still steer their boat right towards the rocks. It didn't matter that there, that there, were, that there were wreckage all over the rocks from previous ships. When the, when the sirens would begin singing and calling to the sailors, they would just lose their mind and go right towards the rocks. And that's what the state does to you. That's, that's how powerful the allure of power is. It... it is far i i speak for myself i don't think i would be able to resist that kind of that kind of temptation uh and i i hope i've i'm never tempted that way but to put someone else in that position and vote them in hoping they can do it when you yourself 
deep in your mind, you know, you know, you would not be able to handle that kind of temptation. Then why would you think somebody else could? Why would you put them in a position to be tempted like that? Okay, let's completely shift away from that for a minute. I hadn't actually meant to talk that long about those guys. So I'm going to have to <laughs> I'm going to have to not talk about what I was going to talk about and shift over and talk about something I mentioned the other day. This goes in in lines with what I was talking about that the commercial bubble has not popped yet, that there's still going to be a bubble in the commercial property uh sector of the of the uh of the economy. Right now, there is a massive demand for gold jewelry in Russia. It's up. To, uh, this is according to the World Gold Council. The demand for for jewelry-based gold in Russia is up 28 percent compared to the same time last year. And Russia is not even the number one uh, country desiring jewelry gold. To China, China remains the largest market in the world for jewelry gold. Now, according to the World Gold Council, the reason that Russia has this dramatic uptick in its desire for jewelry gold is because Russia is experiencing historically low inflation with historically high gross domestic uh, production. And um, there's this, this, this swelling uh, consumer confidence in Russia, and wages are improving in Russia. So it's 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 a it's just waves of confidence that are filling the Russian people, causing them uh, levels of prosperity that makes them want gold jewelry. They're not wanting it as a store of wealth like lots of uh, lots of people right now are wanting gold and and precious metals as a hedge against an economic failure. That's not the motivation in Russia right now. The motivation in Russia is because things are going good and they want to wear, they want to show off their their uh, newfound uh, comforts. And why is this happening? Why is it that Russia and China are on the upswing when the United States and much of the West is on a downswing? Well, the reason why is because really and truly Russia and China both have been uh, Russia more dramatically than China, but both have been moving away from communism and towards fascism, towards Western-style fascism. China's been doing this since the 70s, and, of course, Russia's been doing it since the early 90s. Really, Russia began to be more and more polluted by Western-style fascism in going all the way back into the 80s. But the catalyst, of course, was the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And you say, well, no, that's capitalism. Capitalism is doing this to China. Capitalism is doing this to Russia. Well, not really. You know, we're still talking central banks. We're still talking uh, major uh, interference between the government and the biggest and strongest industries. We're still talking about, you know, a lot of socialist controls on a lot of different things. So really, if you look at it, Russia and China are not moving towards capitalism. They are moving towards Western-style fascism. And if you think about the 1930s, and you think about how Russia had, previous to that, Russia had gone through, um, you know, World War I was devastating on Russia, just like it was Germany, and uh, just like it was other places in, in Europe. And 
Russia went with the communist-style government, Lenin and then later Stalin, um, bringing about communist style uh, of an economy. And uh, it was starving the people to death. In the 1930s, uh, people in Russia were starving to death and in mass. At the same time, countries like Germany, Italy, Spain, where fascism... And even the United States, where even though they weren't calling it fascism, in every possible way it was fascism. The FDR administration was clearly a fascist administration. So as fascism was was the economic tune of the day in the United States, in Italy, in Spain, and in Germany, um, because it was fairly young fascism, it was on an uptick. Uh, the 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 fascist aspects of the of society had not completely overwhelmed the market, and um, the market was still in a high production uh, mode. So even though the recovery from the depression was slow in all of those places, there was still recovery. There was still measurable recovery, and there were some setbacks and so forth. But overall. Uh, things were better in 1940, let's say, than they were in 1932. And they were certainly better in places where fascism was way out in the open, like like Germany and Italy. Um, fascism had, had solved, in many ways they thought, fascism had solved the problems. And uh, uh, Mussolini was given, even in the United States, there, were, there was a lot of praise given to Mussolini at how he had turned around the economy in Italy. But the Soviet Union was horribly struggling with communism, and the reason why was because the communism had no price mechanism, but fascism still allowed a certain amount of the, of the price mechanism to work. But what we're seeing now is the maturity of fascism in the West, and the fascism has taken over enough of the market that the market is beginning to fall apart because of it. They can't support that anymore. The, the, pri the price mechanism specifically on money, which is interest rate and, and the money supply, um, the, the price mechanism is falling apart on money in the West, whereas in Russia and in uh, China, they're still in that uptick mode. So even the prosperity that you're seeing there, eventually they're going to hit a saturation point with their fascism, and it's going to come back on them. Right now we're already seeing that in the West. Well, anyway, I'm going to have to cut it off there. I had some more to say about that, but I'm running out of time. So uh, hopefully I've given you something to think about today. For more on liberty, property rights, and the zero aggression principle, go to badquaker.com. And if you're going to Porkfest, be sure and stop by and say hi to me. Thanks a lot, folks. Bye. Bye.